It's all very disorganised for tonight. I'm telephoning Ratten again at 8 and I'm siestering here until 6.30. And I miss you, Lee. What you've just heard is really quite special. It's the first record of Lee Miller and Roland Penrose's love affair. It started at a fancy dress party in Paris in June 1937 and grew into a relationship which would produce and support some of the world's best-loved art and photography. It and nearly 300 other pages of love letters are part of the Lee Miller archives which is based here at Farley's. Most of these letters have never been published or even only read by a handful of people since they were first written over 80 years ago. The Lee Miller Archives was discovered just after I was born, so I kind of grew up with it. I'm Amy Buhassen, I'm the co-director of the Lee Miller Archives and the granddaughter of Lee Miller and Roland Penrose. I did meet Lee, but she died when I was a baby, so we never got to really chat and get to know each other properly. So my idea of who Lee Miller was as a kid was my mum and dad archiving countless negatives for the first 10 years of my life, learning myself how to develop and print my own pictures in the darkroom here, and going to her exhibitions as the world woke up and remembered her as a photographer. It's not until I discovered her writing and her manuscripts and her letters that I really felt like I understood her as a person. That's why I love these letters, and I think that listening to them, hopefully, will give you guys another side of her personality and who she really was. In this series, I will take you through these amazing letters, which completely unedited chart the first two years of Lee and Roland's relationship and covers everything from the happenings at the time in the modern art world, Europe's descent into the Second World War, lots of adventures, plenty of scandal, and hopefully a few laughs too. The first letter from Roland is from just after that fateful party in Paris. 25th of June, 1937. Friday. Lee. My love, Lee. I have slept and woken at last from a dream. Shall I ever dream again anything so unexpected and so marvellous? Roland Penrose was born in 1900. He came from a family of Quakers, and that made him quiet, modest, introspective, and very honest. I'm Anthony Penrose. Lee and Roland were my parents, and I'm recording this in our old family home, Farley's, in East Sussex. As he grew up, he found he wanted to explore the world and find out things that were really not part of his very restrained and cultured existence. He joined the army as a friend's ambulance unit driver in the First World War. And then when that finished, he went to Cambridge to study architecture. And there he met the Bloomsbury people, among them Roger Fry. Fry recognised Roland's passion for modern art and suggested that he should go to Paris and become an art student. And this Roland did in 1922. And the first person he should meet there was Georges Braque. I mean, start as you mean to go on. Later, he met Valentine Bouet. She was a surrealist poet and they fell in love and they married. And she introduced him to Paul Eluard and later Max Ernst. 
Sadly, after 11 years, Roland's marriage to Valentine failed, and he returned to England. But for him, it wasn't a retreat. He arrived in England as the ambassador for surrealism, which was barely known over here. And with a bunch of others, he curated the first international surrealist exhibition, 1936, at the Burlington Galleries in Piccadilly. It was a huge success. I have been looking at my timetables, plans, maps and compasses to try and lay out a course for future navigation. When will you be able to join the Cornish invasion? The house is mine from the 2nd of July for three weeks, but the last week, and July the 17th to the 23rd it will be so full of guests that I myself will have to sleep in the larder. After that I am coming back to London. When can you come? And can you let me know as soon as possible, so that I can make arrangements for the rather restricted space at our disposal? The Cornish invasion comprised of a group of remarkable surrealist artists who came to stay with Roland at Lamb Creek, the house that belonged to his brother, Beekus. It's in a wonderfully secluded spot on the edge of the River Fowl, just opposite the little port of Mopus. This amazing group of surrealists comprised of Max Ernst, and the artist Leonora Carrington, with whom he had just fallen in love. Man Ray came with his new girlfriend, Adi Fideline. Then there was Paul Eluard and his wife Nouche, and the Belgian picture dealer, Edouard Mezens. Also, Eileen Agar and Joseph Bard, her partner. Eileen wrote in her memoirs, it was a delightful surrealist house party that July, with Roland taking the lead, ready to turn the slightest encounter into an orgy. I remember going off to watch Lee taking a bubble bath. But there was not quite enough room in the tub for all of us. The surrealists were always supposed to be such immoral monsters. But I, for one, didn't go to bed with everybody who asked me, when would I have had time to paint? I was in rather a coma yesterday, and can't remember whether I took 300 or 200 francs. I return 200, all that remains in French money. Will you let me know if that's right? And many thanks for the loan. The way to get to Cornwall is to take the train and nightboard from Le Havre to Southampton. I will meet you there if only you will let me know a little while in advance. Leave London from Lamb Creek House. Old Kia, near Truro, Cornwall, on Wednesday next June 30th. My love to you, Roland. Footnote. If you ring up here, I am in always from midnight to ten in the morning. After about three weeks in Cornwall, everybody dispersed. Roland and Lee drove slowly across Europe, pausing in Belgium, to visit Mezens' place. Then they set course for the south coast, for the Côte d'Azur. They were heading for Cannes, because behind Cannes in the hills there's a beautiful little village called Mougins, and that's where they all gathered, at the Hôtel Vaste Horizon. It must have been wonderful for Lee. She'd been living in Egypt for nearly three years. Here, she was able to reconnect with the inspiring and creative company at the front of the Surrealist movement and old friends that she'd known and worked with in Paris. 
Lee's career started as a model. She appeared on the front cover of Vogue just before her 20th birthday and was what today would be the equivalent of a supermodel in America. By the late 20s, 1929, she decided to stop her modelling career and move to Europe. First Italy, then Paris, where she met Man Ray and Hoenig and Hune, who was the head of French Vogue studio. She learnt fashion and surrealist photography and within a year was being published with her own fashion work on the pages of American Vogue, this time as the photographer rather than the model. The 1930s has been described as the death of feminism. However, this is not actually the case. I'm Hilary Roberts, Senior Curator of Photography at Imperial War Museums, Britain's National Museum of Modern Conflict. After First World War, women had been granted the vote in many countries. By the late 1930s, they were beginning to make an impact both as politicians and legislators. Women's access to education and contraception certainly became easier. Women could drive if they had the means to afford a car. Such freedoms meant that marriage was no longer essential for a woman, and a career was possible if you were determined enough to ignore widespread discrimination and unequal pay. Lee was definitely determined. By 1930, she also has her own studio in Paris, which is pretty amazing for a woman at that time to be running her own commercial studio when the world was very much male-orientated. In fact, the studio was not far from Dora Maar and Man Ray. By 1932, she decided to go back to New York and had already set up her own new studio that she was going to open in Manhattan on 8 East 48th Street. She had work already set up with American Vogue. She had her own dealer that was going to sell her photography. And she hit the ground running as she got off the boat and set up her own publicity storm. Just showing that by now, she really knew how to work commercially, how to walk the walk and talk the talk. And she knew how to sell her work. It was at her New York studio that her Egyptian adventure started. She'd met this Egyptian businessman, Aziz Eloise Bey, in Paris and they'd had an affair, but she thought it was finished. And He came out to New York and proposed that she married him. Within a year and a half, she'd closed her New York studio and moved to Cairo. And this was in July 1934. At the beginning, she loved Egypt. For the first time in her life, she didn't need to worry about paying the bills, taking the photographs that would fit the advertiser's brief or impress the sitters or sell and she took a break from photography completely. She wrote to her brother John that until Christmas that year, she hadn't even taken a roll of film. The initial excitement and adventure in Egypt, however, soon was overshadowed by the stifling expatriate community she found herself in, and the expectations of her as a wealthy businessman's wife was a stark contrast to the freedom she'd enjoyed as an artist and running her own studio as a successful businesswoman in Paris and New York. So this is written on a torn sheet from a notebook, one of those ones with kind of squares all over it, and she's ripped it out. It's cold on the train. I'm alone with the noise and my tears, unlike your chains, bind me. It was true. It is true. I'm leaving. I love you. And I'll return. 
The next day, on the 5th of October, Lee writes her first letter to Roland. It's written on paper from the Hotel de Neuil in Marseille, which is slightly off-white in colour and the hotel name and phone number are embossed on the top. Darling. Darling. Darling, 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 darling. I linger over all the syllables that I can invent in it, and it's the only thing I can think to say. I'm waiting for a phone call to you, and a taxi's waiting for me. Marseille isn't fun at all without you, and I'm tired and sad, old, bitched and bewildered. I touch all my treasures, things you gave me and that we chose together and think of all the other silly things packed away. Oh, darling, darling, I must destroy something. Myself? You? Or our memories? I can't bear this for long. I almost doubt that there were three months so perfect, so happy. Maybe I invented it too. Darling, 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 darling. I want you. The three months so perfect with Roland ended in the village of Mougins in the south of France near Cannes with a group of wonderful artists. It became a sort of surrealist summer camp. Man Ray and Addy were there and so was Paul Eluard and Nouche. Eileen Agar and Joseph Bard. But Max and Leonora didn't come. Their place, in a way, was taken by Picasso and the Hungarian photographer he had recently fallen in love with, Dora Maar. It was on this occasion that Lee took her famous picnic photograph, with them all sitting around the table, having a wonderful time with blissful smiles on their faces. But it all had to end, and Lee and Roland parted in Marseille in early October. They would not see each other again for nearly a year. 6th October Darling, here I am on a boat too, thinking every minute of you on yours. At last I've got a moment for this poor substitute, letter-writing. There were so many things I wanted to say to you on the telephone, but I was hardly a match for anything so unexpected and so longed for. Yesterday passed in a frantic race to get done all I wanted. While I watched the clock to see midday come with you leaving Marseille, I rushed from Lefebvre to Zevros and Zevros to Breton and Breton to Pierre, fixing up all sorts of odds and ends that had to be done. In the afternoon I finally found Picasso and went with him and Dora to his studio. All the Mougin pictures were arranged round the walls with the exception of about half a dozen, including my portrait, which has already preceded me to America. Roland had met Picasso in March of 1937 because he found in Christian Zervos's magazine Cahier d'Art an illustration of a painting that fascinated him and he wanted to see it for real and maybe buy it. And through Paul Eluard, he made connections with Picasso and finally got to see the painting and buy it. It was a difficult painting. And in buying that difficult painting, 
he became friends with Picasso because Picasso recognised in this quiet, shy Englishman the man who could fall in love with and understand the difficult paintings. And that friendship was to last for many, many years. While they were in Mougins, Picasso had painted Lee Miller's portrait. He painted her six times. It's a wonderful sequence of glorious colour and joie de vivre and everything. And one painting in particular, Roland felt really summed up Lee with its bright pink background and her bright yellow face symbolising her warmth and her intellectual brilliance. As I thought, my few words at Mougin had not been wasted, and there was no difficulty in getting your portrait, which I took away with me in triumph. There was no time to get a frame, or get it sent off, so I have got it with me, and will profit of its marvels while I look round for a suitable frame in London. It will then take the boat to you, darling, the inspiratrice of my chef d'oeuvre. Finally, I was about to pack and prepare for dinner with man. I got a note from Max, just arrived in Paris. I at once went to see him, and found him tearing out his last white hairs. In fact, it was just as well that he should do it himself, otherwise the two rivals will certainly do it for him. He was in a hopeless dilemma, and no nearer a solution than when he left Cornwall. He wants, in spite of all I could say to the contrary, to make them live together and I suppose die of asphyxiation from their curses. But at the moment Mary Burt holds the field again, and C is left down in the Ardèche in a frenzy of despair. They both seem to be behaving very hysterically, and Max, who after all has been the origin of all the trouble, looks like a martyr about to be consumed in flames. I was naturally at a loss to know what to say, and simply told him to come alone to London when the flames got too hot. Oh my, what a gossip. It feels really odd hearing Roland chat about Leonora Carrington as C, and the difficulties in Max Ernst's relationship with her and his wife, Marie-Berthe Arrange. Now I am on a bloody little ferryboat being bounced about in a small gale. No cuties. Or do you spell it... Quitties or QTs or QTs, please correct me, to be seen anywhere and a sinister contrast to the last crossing we made. In fact, my darling, everything has gone very grey and lost all its meaning since you left. Tony naturally couldn't get her papers through and I had to leave her with the vague hope that she may come over later. I'm all alone on a very grey sea, thinking of you on a very bright one. At least hope that capricious witch the Mediterranean is smiling at you. I sing to myself, out of sight, out of mind, but without any effect, as I can't get you out of my sight even, especially as man gave me last night three very beautiful photos of you, which are so like you and so marvellous that I can hardly resist licking them. Lee met Man Ray in 1929. She'd got a letter of introduction to him from the photographer Edward Steichen, who she'd modelled for in America. She'd turned up at an apartment and he hadn't been there, so, on the advice of the concierge, went across the road to the Bateau Ivre to have a drink, and he was there. She went to him and she says, I told him boldly, 
I was going to be his new student. He said he didn't take students, and anyway, he was off to Baritz on his holidays. I said, I know, and I'm going with you. And Lee did. They went off to Baritz for a wonderful holiday, and when they came back, she started off as his student. Very quickly, she also became his lover, and then his collaborator as well. The two of them as artists working together are most famous for the solarization technique, which is actually called the Sabatier effect. Lee had rediscovered it when she was in the darkroom, developing some of Man Ray's plates. Very early on in her relationship, she started to do a lot of his photographic work with him, because at that particular time, Man Ray wanted to concentrate on being a painter. The story goes that she was in the darkroom, and she felt like a rat or something crawled over her foot. She turned on the light at the wrong moment when the plates should have been in complete darkness. Realising what she'd done, she turned it off quickly and finished developing the plates. When she could look at them and it was safe to turn the light back on again, she realised that there was this dark outline that had solarised around the edge of the subject in the picture. She showed it to Man Ray, and the two of them were delighted by the accidental discovery of this technique. They then turned it into a scientific experiment where they were timing it and working on different variants to work out a way of being able to predict the effects so that they could then use it in their work. Man Ray called it solarization, and he's the one that's become famous for using it, but actually the two of them continued to use it right through the rest of their lives and there's examples of solarization in Lee's work from this point onwards even during the war. As well as artists working together Lee and Man Ray were also lovers. Their relationship was quite tempestuous. Lee embraced the idea of surrealism very quickly and when it came to the free love values which the men tended to practice a lot but when Lee started to do it Man Ray became incredibly jealous. It caused a lot of problems in their relationship and made him become more and more possessive of her. In the end, he became too intense and the two of them parted, but they remained affectionate and friends for the rest of their lives. My darling, life is a shit house. sometimes. I never thought I should have fallen so completely into this trap. You, my love, I know by the time you get this letter will have found another atmosphere, and I hope most sincerely that you will be very happy, either very happy or very soon back in my arms. Those are the only alternatives possible. I asked Zervos to send you the Picasso etching for the postcards and the next number of the Cahier d'Art, which is full of reproductions of drawings for the big picture in the Spanish pavilion. There seems to be rather a glut of Picasso in what I've sent. I hope you don't mind. Incidentally, an item which would have made you laugh and call out the anti-evil eye happened at the hotel last night when I saw four American priests being given room number 47. This morning all the lights in the hotel had fused and I left the place looking like a house with a curse on it in a violent rainstorm. London, Wednesday evening. My love, I'm back here where I started from. Stacks of fatuous, unanswered letters, pictures, objects, and an intolerable silence. 
a blank. Everything tries to look as though nothing had happened and to hide the fact that all has changed. That a marvellous presence has been here and has gone. Darling, I read your letters. I'm broken, a wreck. Only three words in it give me courage and something to live for. Three words written in the train. Darling, if they are all true, all is well. You say, I'll return. Oh, my love, without that, I can see no way out of this hell. To have lived three months of such unbelievable happiness, lost in the enchantment of your presence, and for it to finish like this is unbearable. I see you, hear your voice, feel your hand every minute, and it's nothing. Gone. This afternoon on the boat I dozed for a moment over my stupid book and saw you so clearly that for an instant you were really there, sitting in your yellow coat, building something in Cornwall blue wool. You looked at me with such sweetness. Your lips parted and were just going to speak. God, what tricks they can play on one. To wake then, to find cold grey emptiness. I'm sorry, my love, I mustn't go on like this. It helps no one. There is only one thing I want to say, and the rest is merely a way of saying it, without saying it, of being in contact with you by the only means that are left to me. My Lee, my love. I can never say how much I love you. It's beyond all powers of expression. You have given me something new, something so potent that it is either life or death. Darling, I want you. Darling, come back. Of course, I've been trying to revive all my normal, all my pre-Lee activities so as not to go quite batty all at once. I called on Henry Moore in the country near Dover. I showed him your portrait and they gave me dinner. Ham, eggs and fresh mushrooms. It was very charming and damned insipid. It just meant nothing at all, so I hurried on in the dark and rain to find my house entirely occupied by you, darling. Your phantom. But I can't live with a phantom. My love, come back. Lee. My Lee. My love. My Duke. I love you. Roland. Thursday morning. Just another word, my darling, before running with this to the post. I wake up finding you even nearer and even further than last night. I can only repeat and repeat, darling, the same cry. I love you. I love you, but not without hope. In fact, the one thing that will make life possible again is your promise to come back. Meanwhile, all I can do is renew my invitation but this time without dates you accepted once. Come back, Lee, my love. The date is to be filled in by you. Choose your time, but don't, darling, make me wait too long. Tell me where to write you next. So this one is written um, from the ship that Lee is sailing back to Egypt on the T.S. Mohammed El El Kabir, and it was posted in Malta 
to Roland back in Hampstead on one of their stops on the way back. It's written on a kind of creamy beige paper, which has got a, like, a tint of green to it as well. And on the back of the envelope, there's a sketch of a head that's upside down. 7th of October, 1937. Here consists of a great deal of desert, some nasty rocks, pouring rain and a very dismal awakening. This morning without you was more of a real shock of misery than the last two, when I was annoyed and instated by trains and strangeness. I hold imaginary conversations with you and love you, darling, and miss you and want you. Duke. In the next episode, Roland becomes really concerned that he's not getting Lee's letters and he thinks she's forgotten him. And Lee is up to mischief and shocks the people on the deck of the ship. In this episode of Love Letters in Gold Handcuffs, our guest speakers were Hilary Roberts and Anthony Penrose. It was presented by me, Amy Buhasen. Roland was played by Adam Grayson. It was produced by Tolly Robinson and the music is by David Cullen. The episode and its content is copyright the Lee Miller Archives. <laughs>